One Emotional Podcast, Conversations for Inspiration on the Go. We offer on-the-go inspiration because our whole heart is set on beauty and our best bets are set on art. Hi, Chris. How are you? Welcome to Luan Emotional Podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So this amazing person that I have in front of me, um, oh, well, we know each other, what, like maybe 10, 12 years ago, maybe. And, um, and Chris is amazing. Well, he's actually a professor, no? And he's also a best-selling author of the book, Connect the Dots, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. And this is a wise and exciting and life-challenging book, this, I'm quoting it, said by Ariana Huffington, that provides excellent practical guidance for all, which this was quoted by Paul Pullman, former CEO of Unilever, and that is highly recommended, also quoting by Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn. An international unknown expert in the areas of innovation, purpose, driven leadership, and serendipity. He's the director of the CGA Global Economy Program at New York University, and also teaches at the London School of Economics. He's co-founder of Sandbook Network, that's how we know, uh, Chris and I know each other, a global community of young innovators as well as of leaders on purpose. His research has been published in leading, in leading journals such as Harvard Business Review, Stanford Social Innovation Review, The Guardian, Fast Company, BBC, Washington Post, and Forbes. And he received the Best Paper Award of the Emerald Publishing and the Best Social Entrepreneurship Paper Award of the Academy of Management. Amazing, Chris. This is wonderful. So I would like to start and ask you about this thing about serendipity. So I know that you know, many people believe that life happens to us or to them, right? That we're not responsible or impacting what is happening around us, right? That maybe it is because, I don't know, maybe some people have success because of luck or others have success because of other conditions, but it's kind of like, um, kind of like we're always focusing on external factors of why someone or a company becomes successful. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm very grateful, obviously, that we serendipitously at some point also met and, and, and to be here now. And um, hi, everyone. It's, it's great to be here. I hopefully meet everyone in person as well at, at some point. I'm a big fan of Mexico City. We talked with Marion how I used to live in Mexico City and, and I get very nostalgic, uh, you know, being here uh, with you. Um, and so, no, so, so, so I feel what's fascinating about this, this topic is that to your point, usually when we think about luck, we think about something that's passive, right? So something that happens to us, being born into a loving family, things we can't really influence. Mm -hmm. But what I'm really excited about is in our work, you know, um, as entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, community builder, and later in academia, what was fascinating is to see that the most inspiring, purpose-driven, inspirational people, they seem to have something in common, which is that they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They intuitively cultivate this kind of smart luck that's very different from blind luck. Um, it's, it's really this kind of luck that's all about seeing something in unexpected moments and then connecting the dots and, and, and turning it into something positive. So to give you an example, imagine you have erratic hand movements like I do, and then you spill a lot of coffee, right? So imagine you spill coffee over someone in a coffee shop and they look at you and they're slightly annoyed, right? They're like, Ugh, why do you spill coffee over me? But you sense there might be something there. You don't know what it is. You just sense there might be something there. Now you have two options, right? Option number one is you just say, I'm so sorry. You walk outside and you think, ah, 
what could have happened had I spoken with a person. Option number two, you speak with that person, uh, have a conversation, that person turns out to become the love of your life, your co-founder, you name it. The point here is that our reaction to the unexpected, us making the accident meaningful, that's how a lot of serendipity happens. That's how up to 50% of inventions and, and, and innovations like Viagra and all these things happen, right? That there's some kind of accident happening, but then you have to connect the dots to something meaningful. You have to do something with it. And that's what I find fascinating in terms of what's a science-based framework for doing this. Mm, that's wonderful. And what have you seen? What is the science-based you know, framework about this? What, what angles have you researched? What have you seen? Yeah, well, it's interesting because in a way, there's two things we can do, right? So if we look at serendipity as a process of essentially spotting something in the unexpected, seeing something and then connecting the dots, mm -hmm. we can influence both, right? We can, we can create more potential triggers for serendipity. And then we can do more with unexpected moments as they happen. So to the first one, I'm a big fan of the hook strategy. And the hook strategy is all about the idea that you can create more dots that could be connected for other people. So to give an example, there's an amazing entrepreneur in London called Ollie Barrett. And if you would ask Ollie the dreaded, you know, what do you do question that puts people into boxes, he wouldn't just say, I'm a technology entrepreneur. He would say something like, I'm a technology entrepreneur recently started reading into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. Mm -hmm. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential touch points where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. I recently started hosting piano sessions. You should come by. Oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister is teaching on the philosophy of science. You should give a guest lecture. The point is we can all somehow think about what are a couple of themes, some kind of interests that we want to build into every conversation and then just seed them. So for example, you know, when I come late to a meeting, I would say something like, I'm so sorry, I'm late. I was just thinking about how we can integrate serendipity mindset into more schools and, and, and companies, but now I'm here. I'm so excited to be here. And so what I'm doing is I'm just sprinkling things into conversations where one out of 20 people usually picks it up and says, my God, such a coincidence. I didn't even know you work with schools. My aunt has a school, X, Y, Z, and, and so on. So I'm a big fan of, you know, doing a serendipity journal where you just write down what are the things I'm at the moment curious about, interested in, and then seeding them into conversation. So that's the first point, which is all about how do you create more of this? And then we can also learn how to connect the dots more. And we can definitely talk more about that as well. But the co core point is we can influence this whole process. Of course, it's just kind of like you're going out into life planting seeds, right? And eventually maybe those seeds are going to harvest in a day or in a minute because you spill a coffee on someone or maybe they will, I don't know, maybe they will harvest in a year or so. But it's constantly about kind of like, you know, sprinkling those seeds around you and also kind of like embracing that multi potentiality that we all have, right? It's most of the times, and we've we've seen it with other generations that if they used to ask like the, what do you do? No question. Eventually people only answered one thing, usually work, right? But they completely didn't talk about hobbies or they didn't talk about other passions or interests. And nowadays you can also see it in any person's resume, right? It's like, okay, I'm a kite surfer or I'm a, I don't know, I'm an enthusiastic, I'm an enthusiastic of um, mechanic, you know, quantum mechanics, for example, right? And it's kind of like also opening on all of the interests that we have around us, right? What is the correlationship between curiosity that brings you to different topics, different themes, different, you know, activities that we sense it and serendipity. Yeah. Well, I really love the example you just mentioned, right? How you can use the CV also to put some hooks out there. And, 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 you know, I'm a big fan of doing that in different areas and, you know, we can definitely talk more about this as well. And I think, but, 
but to your point of curiosity, I mean, I'm a big fan of The Little Prince, you know, the, the book uh, that's all about yeah. that kind of uh, person who, you know, like a little kid that walks around and essentially just asks everyone like, why, 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 why? And that's, you know, we can learn a lot from kids there, right? How kids are always so curious. And, and in a way we, we unlearn this because we get kind of like trained into, you know, different areas. But the, the curiosity piece, you know, when you think about it, a lot of times serendipity comes out of being open to the unexpected, being open to learning something new, to connecting the dots differently. And so curiosity has a huge part uh, to play. And I'm a big fan, actually, in this regard, to, to always ask why. Like there's there's a couple of, of approaches, right? The five whys, for example, where the idea is that always ask why five times in order to really understand the problem. And I always love that, you know, so we probably all had that, for example, the toothpaste problem, right? So the toothpaste problem where, let's say you're in a relationship and you put the toothpaste somewhere and your partner gets really, really angry on you. And, and, and then you're like, oh my God, why, why would you be so angry about toothpaste? And then you argue about the toothpaste, but then you ask, well, why are you angry? And then they might say, well, I feel disrespected by you. And so like, the more you do that, the more you understand, oh, it's not about the toothpaste. It's about the underlying X, Y, Z thing. And, and so I think that's where then a lot of times we connect the dots differently because we're like, oh my God, I didn't even realize that for you, respect means this. So now we can do this. And that's in every area of life, right? Once we kind of have the curiosity to explore more, we see all these unexpected dots that we can connect. Totally. And I think that happens a lot with kids, especially like my kid, he's three years old. And I think we arrived maybe to like the 10 whys, <laughs> you know, like, mom, why is this guy blue? And you explain and then, but why? And then explain, but why? But why? But why? <laughs> Until you reach a point where you obviously you can't explain anymore. You're like, I don't know, but we're going to discover it together, you know? <laughs> but I love that that example about, you know, asking those many whys, because eventually you, you, you learn that the real reasons behind some attitudes or some, you know, behaviors that we have with people around us, actually it's something that's kind of, um, has a different cover, right? It's, it's, it's communicated in a way, but it's not exactly like the real deal. Right. And that, that example about going to why, 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 why it helps a lot to reach, you know, the pain point to reach the, where the root is growing, no? And I absolutely love it. Also, another thing that I was um, thinking while you were uh, communicating this is that most of the times with serendipity, um, we tend to think that we either are lucky or not, right? And some people say like, I'm not lucky at all, no? And maybe, well, maybe that's the reality, right? But how are we building this kind of like brain sense of, you know, that essence of what our life is depending on we decide if we're lucky or not? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, and, and those of you who are listening, I mean, you know, if you ask yourself the question, right, do you consider yourself to be lucky or unlucky? If you consider yourself to be lucky, you are much more likely to actually be luckier in the future. And, and the reason is because you frame the world differently. You will look at the world and you will start to see the positively unexpected because the positively unexpected is everywhere, right? And to give you one experiment example, um, so, so they did an experiment where they they took people who self-identify as very lucky. Mm -hmm. So people who say good things tend to happen to me, da -da, and people who self-identify as very unlucky. So people who say bad things tend to happen to me, I'm always in accidents and, and so on. And we probably all know people on this kind of spectrum on this continuum. And so they take one of each and they say, walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, sit down, and then we'll have a conversation or interview. What they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras along the street and inside the coffee shop. 
there's a five pound note, so money in front of the coffee shop. And inside the coffee shop, there's one empty seat next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big dreams happen. Mm. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman. They have a nice conversation, exchange business cards, potential opportunity coming out of it. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, so doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both people, how was your day today? So the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. I found money in the street, made a new friend, and, you know, potentially an opportunity coming out of it. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And, you know, you see that a lot in experiments with couples, for example. You put them into exactly the same situation, but one of them turns out to be a little bit luckier than the other because of the way they ask questions, but most importantly, because of the way they perceive reality. Because in this case, right, if you expect that there could be money, you see money. I find a lot of money in the street. Unfortunately, mostly pennies, so it doesn't really make me like change my lifestyle. But, but it's amazing how much money people drop. But if you don't expect people to drop money, you will not see it. And that's the same in, in life in general, right? If we don't expect that if you take another street to work in the morning and you see an old book in the bookstore that that could be a podcast idea, you don't see it. You don't see those opportunities that are everywhere. And I think that comes back to your earlier point, right? That potentiality is everywhere, but we have to decide to want to see it in every book, every movie. If we don't, then we will stay unlucky. Totally. And it depends on where we put our attention because... I think that just by the fact of being alive or the fact of our existence in this planet right now, it has to do with a lot of luck. Okay. Imagine all of the limits, no? all of your descendants no? that you've had throughout the years, right? All of, those, all of those persons that have survived either plagues, either wars, either all kinds of diseases, everything, you know, from generation to generation, your, your parents, your grandparents, and so on and so on, to make you that you're, sorry, to, to, for you to be here. No, it's like, I, when, I, when I see that, like, imagine, like, humans, I don't know, they've been alive for millions of years, right? So how, how much, or well, at least, you know, the, the intelligent life, right? Imagine all of those, you know, factors that are happening that had to happen for you to be here. That happens exactly the same way in Earth, right? For us to be here alive is because we have the specific amount of oxygen with the specific amount of carbon dioxide, right? Mixed together in this delicate balance, right? And the fact that we are alive in our 30s, also it means that we have been very, very, very lucky, Right. So for us to arrive here, it just depends on where you're putting the attention. If you want to focus on something that creates lack, right? Or if you want to focus on something that actually creates more abundance, no? if you want to say it that way. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's interesting because a lot of our work is in uh, context of extreme poverty. So I do a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example. And it's fascinating how some of the kind of happiest, most resourceful, most creative people are in extreme poverty contexts because they essentially say, look, Like, I need to make the best out of what is here, otherwise I will not survive. And so I don't even have time to think about, oh, I'm in such a bad position. Mm -hmm. I just do essentially with whatever I have. And I've always been extremely inspired by this, by this idea that, you know, people make the best out of what is at hand and, and they do something. And I think, of course, our responsibility as the ones who are kind of more privileged is to, to level the playing field and to, to, to help everyone kind of be at the same starting position. But what I've been extremely inspired by is how people in those contexts, the resourcefulness, to give you an example, 
there's an amazing entrepreneurship initiative called Reconstructed Living Labs in mm -hmm. the Cape Flats in Cape Town, very impoverished area. And essentially, they have a low-cost med education methodology, and they go into local contexts, local communities that are impoverished. Mm -hmm. And instead of asking, what do you need, right, which puts people into the role of the victim, the beneficiary, they ask, what's already here, and how can we make the best of it? Mm -hmm. There's a former drug dealer, fantastic. That person will have a lot of social capital. That person will be really creative. And if we can turn them into a teacher, they will turn a community around because now it's cool to be in education because the cool kid is a teacher. Same when they look at an old garage, they see a training center. And so it's kind of those things where I think that reframing of saying, hey, look, we will not always get all the resources we need. We will not always have the budget we need, but we will a lot of times actually have a lot of pre-existing things that we can draw on once we change our perspective. And so I'm always a big fan, you know, of, of, of looking in exactly to your point, like, what is the abundance here? And, you know, to give you one example from my students, you know, a lot of times students say, oh, I don't have the social networks yet to make a lot of things happen. And I don't feel like I can have a lot of social capital. And so we always make a deal. And the deal is, okay, go to a public event where like a very eminent person is speaking, right? So go to like a local university that hosts a great speaker or the local library, wherever. Go there and, you know, go into the audience. And then whenever the speech is ready, you're the first person who asks the first question. So you get up, you know, energetically and so that they can't ignore you, not too much, but like in a way that kind of like, you know, everyone sees that you really want to ask a question. And then you ask a question. And the, que the, the way you ask the question is you say something like, Thank you so much for the inspiring presentation. So you make it all about the speaker. It's all about the speaker. Thank you so much for the inspiring presentation. As someone who recently graduated and wants to go into XYZ area, I was wondering if you can give me a blah, blah, blah. So in the middle, you set the hook. And what always happens in an audience of 400, 500 people, there's always four, five, six people who come afterwards to the student and say, my God, such a coincidence. My brother recently went into something similar. I will put you in touch. My God, such a coincidence. We're hiring people like you. I'll put you in touch. The point is that even if we don't have like abundance or social capital in this case, we can draw from the abundance of others. And I think that's kind of in a way um, the, the amazingness of life, right? That it's all about how do we put ourselves into situations where we can actually do that. And, and that's the similar thing to what you mentioned about the CV. Like it's all about how do we leverage things that uh, like other people don't leverage. They just put like normal box things into it. But how can you leverage this in ways that actually make people curious about you? Of course. And I also think that emotionally you need to be ready, right? Mm -hmm. Because you've seen, well, I've seen also like many people around that maybe they could be throwing opportunities outside or throwing kind of like the hooks, but internally, maybe their beliefs, they have a different mindset of beliefs, right? And maybe they're throwing outside opportunities, but deep inside of them, maybe they're way too afraid, or maybe they prefer to be still in their comfort zone, or maybe they prefer, I don't know, to have a different reality. What what kind of like things have you seen by this difference between a belief mindset that, that's already ingrained and going out into the world, you know, throwing these hooks or these seeds around? Because these two need to be aligned. They, they, there needs to be a lot of coherence. If not, it's not, it's not going to work. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of that, you know, we all have some kind of self-limiting beliefs, right? There's, there's, there's societal constraints for some, and then there's self-limiting beliefs for, for, for almost everyone. And, you know, in my case, you know, it might be imposter syndrome or fear of rejection, all these different things, right? And they might all play a role. And so I'm actually a big fan of stepping back and thinking about in my life, 
in those situations where serendipity could have happened, but it didn't. So where maybe I was in a meeting, I had an unexpected idea, but I didn't bring it up because I felt not worthy enough. I felt not ready enough, whatever it is. Or in those coffee shop situations where I felt I should have spoken to the person, but I didn't. What was it that held me back? And then really looking at the pattern. And if the pattern, for example, is fear of rejection, then really working on that underlying pattern. So to give you an example, I'm not necessarily endorsing that example because I think it's you know, in some contexts, it's, it's, it's very questionable. But so a friend of mine who had a fear of rejection mm -hmm. and he said, okay, I have to overcome this fear of rejection because a lot in life depends on me speaking up. Mm -hmm. And so what he did was he identified coffee shops that, uh, where he knew he would never go back again. And then he would go inside and he would say, can I have a free coffee, please? And, and, and that is the kind of question where most likely you will be rejected, right? Most likely someone will say, who are you? Like, why, why do you think you get a free coffee? Why would I do so, that? <laughs> exactly. But so, so now when you do that a couple of times, you get more and more used to it. You see it more as a game. You get more into the idea of, oh, rejection seems to be more normal than, than I thought it is. And so you build a muscle for rejection. And I think that's the kind of interesting thing, right? Every entrepreneur knows that, like, you have to send out 100 funding applications. You have to pitch to hundreds of or tens of, of VCs to actually get something. And it gets easier. The more you do it, the easier it gets. It will always sting, but the easier it gets. And the, the one thing that really helped me to, to get easier about these things is to think about what is the worst thing that can happen? I always assumed the worst thing would be the sting that comes from the rejection, right? The, the sting of like, I don't have time for you. I don't want to talk with you, whatever. But then I realized the thing that actually consumes the most energy is the feeling of regrets, the feeling of going outside and thinking, ah, what could have happened had I brought in the idea? What could have happened had I spoken with a person? Da, da, da. And so I think that reframing of like the worst thing that can happen is the regrets. I think then actually we tend to speak up more often. And that's really the Jeff Bezos idea of like, how do you minimize regret in life? How do you get away from this idea of, of, of just thinking about, oh, this will be discomfort? No. When you will be on your deathbed, what will you regret the most? And if you will regret that you haven't spoken up, then by any means, now is the time to, to, to work on that. Of course, now is the time actually to do it. And it also reminds me a lot of what we were talking at the beginning about uh, curiosity, because it seems that you also change the focus, right? At the beginning, the focus is on rejection, right? Will I get rejected or not? And if you do, maybe you feel hurt, right? But then afterwards, the focus is on curiosity of, hmm, what's going to happen if I get rejected? How am I going to feel? How am I going to react? That person, will I get it or not? Do you think he will give me the, the free cup of coffee or not? And then you're kind of like dancing or playing or kind of like having a little bit of fun with curiosity instead of focusing on the rejection per se. So you're actually changing your focus on something that becomes way more playful, right? Instead of like re rejection, most of the time it can feel, you know, uncomfortable. And I agree with you, no? Most of the time, if you continue doing, doing it, can, it's like, it's like a muscle, right? The more you do it, no? the more, the more fit you can become <laughs> by that rejection, right? But it's also kind of like changing the focus on playing with, you know, that curiosity. What happens if I do this? What happens if I achieve this? Right? And maybe you're connecting that serendipity to that also having fun, Right, because I know that you know more people that are focused on serendipity or that have this kind of like successful lives or whatever you want to call it, because success depends. You know, it's very different for every person. But 
I think some, most of the times I see them that they're kind of like playing. They're kind of like having fun. They're kind of like testing. They're kind of like saying, oh, this works. Okay, I'm going to do more of this. This doesn't work. I'm going to kill it and do something else, right? What can you tell us about having fun and serendipity? Yeah, well, it's a great question. It reminds me of, um, so, so when I started with this work, um, you know, it was fascinating because I used to be in London before at the university there. And um, it was interesting, right? Because I was told, look, like, you can't really be scientific about serendipity. Like this is academic suicide if you do it. And, and so it was a fascinating kind of like curve, I think, in terms of getting to, okay, well, maybe there is a science to it. And one of the things that I, I succinctly remember is going to a colleague of mine who, um, you know, he's this kind of very established professor person and like has a wonderful family and all these things. And so, you know, I went with him with the ideas and he was like, well, Christian, uh, I love you. I love your ideas, but I don't need serendipity in my life. I have, I'm okay. Like I have everything. And so we made a deal and the deal was do a couple of small things differently in your life, you know, cast a couple of hooks, uh, ask like more open-ended questions instead of asking, what do you do? Ask, what do you enjoy doing? Right? Like, like small modifications in language, but that open up this kind of spectrum of potentiality. And then let's, let's reconvene a couple of weeks. He comes back a couple of weeks later and he's like, Christian, I didn't know that life can be so joyful. Like it's actually fun. Like, like now every interaction can be fun. Like even with like the person in the coffee shop, like now I have an interesting conversation with. And so it's kind of the interesting thing. I think that um, to your point, once we look at life, not as a series of potential constraints or a series of potential rejection and, and things that can go wrong um, and the unexpected as a source of anxiety, and, and then more saying, and that's actually at the core of this work to say, how do we like, like, like take the unexpected from a threat into an ally? How do we take that into something where the unexpected becomes part of our journey in a way that actually makes life joyful because it, it shows us what else is possible. And, 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 you know, to give you an example there, um, I'm a big fan, for example, of like, you know, when you think about the potato washing machine, right? So the potato washing machine is a couple of years ago, um, a company in China that I've been working with called Hire, they produce washing machines and refrigerators and so on. And they received calls from farmers. And the farmers told them, your crappy washing machine is breaking down. So they asked them, well, why is it breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it. It doesn't seem to work. So what would we usually do? We would probably say, well, our marketing plan says that washing machines are made to wash clothes, not potatoes. So let's educate the person to wash their potatoes in it, uh, to wash their clothes in it, not their potatoes. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected. But there's probably a lot of farmers in China who have a similar problem. So why don't we just build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And that's how the, the potato washing machine emerged. The point here is they didn't see the unexpected moment as a threat to we misplanned, we are a failure, that we didn't see it coming. No, the opposite. They saw it as an opportunity to add something on top. And that's the same in our own life. Like if we see the unexpected not as something that threatens who we are, that threatens our planning, but that actually, in a way, can always add to what we want to do in life, then it becomes beautiful. And believe me, look, I come from Germany. We love planning. We love strategies. So we don't like the unexpected. But this kind of like approach has been, to me, one of the most anxiety-decreasing approaches because it's essentially saying, look, like every interaction, if it goes wrong. So, for example, if now, um, I don't know, uh, if something breaks down with a machine or something, that then is, a, is, a, is a, for example, an excuse to connect more meaningfully, to say, oh my God, I'm fallible, I'm just a human. 
things like this where every moment and every crisis becomes an opportunity to to actually do with it and so i'm a big fan actually since since then of of, of also using this approach really to to decrease anxiety so to, to have joy but also to cre decrease anxiety of course of course i totally agree with you i also think i would add one more thing about doing things different right i think that most of the times Um, I don't know, if you take a different route, if you listen to different music than you normally do, if you tune into different radio stations or podcasts, or you, if you read a book that maybe wouldn't be in what you usually read, right? You're constantly opening yourself to possibility. You're opening yourself to new learning. You're opening yourself to something that you... You, you don't know how, how are you going to react and then you're going to have maybe kind of like this positive impact of knowing like, oh, maybe you turn out to be really good at something that you at the beginning didn't know that you were going to be good at, right? And by only doing kind of like the same things routinary, well, eventually you know exactly, you know, what's your, what's your space and how big you can move, right? But if you start doing things differently, I think that limit completely expands. And it reminds me of this quote that says like borders, I have never seen one, but, I've, but I have heard they exist in some people's mind, right? So we're constantly playing with where our borders and our minds are, right? If we are going to use the washing machine to wash clothes or potatoes, no, we eventually have been educated, okay, washing machines work for clothes, right? But maybe they could wash <laughs> many things like potatoes, like utensils, like whatever, right? And that's kind of like spark of mixing different, um, different capabilities, no? create this, you know, uh, amazing um, accidents. And it also has to do a lot with art because there are many, many accidents that have happened in art that actually created masterpieces. And you can see that there's this painting about Picasso that eventually, you know, he spilled part of the painting. And then that became kind of like, you know, the, the most important part of that painting, no? And so on. But I think that something really important is, you know, this example that you gave, those people didn't had shame on communicating that they use the, the washer for washing potatoes. And most of the time, sometimes we think like, oh, I did something wrong and we feel shame and then we don't communicate about it. And when we kind of like hide it instead of, you know, being open to that communication and maybe that could create an opportunity. So maybe serendipity is also kind of like the antidote, the antidote of shame. Yeah, no, and, and I think that that's such a great point because I mean, you know, one of the things in the in the context of organizations actually is you know, if you have practices like project funerals, for example, where you say usually when something goes wrong, you try to hide it, right? And the same in families, by the way. I mean, us as parents, right? The same thing. Like usually when you as parents do something wrong, you don't want to show it necessarily towards your kid. You want to kind of pretend that you're always in control and all that stuff. But actually, the real connection comes from also admitting these kind of small things and, and building a, a connection with, with the kid, with the team, and, and you name it. And so Project Funerals, for example, in, in organizations are all about saying, if something doesn't work out, instead of hiding it, the person who's responsible for it presents it in front of people from other divisions, other departments, and talks about what they learned from it. So it's not about celebrating failure. It's about celebrating uh, the, the learning from what didn't work. And then a lot of times, actually, people in the audience are like, oh, my God, like, yes, this idea doesn't work in this context, but maybe it could work in this context. Like, for example, there was a, a window glass, amazing technology. They laid it to rest and they said, oh, we learned that next time we have to understand that people don't pay as much money for it. Someone in the audience goes like, hey, 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 have you considered what it means for solar? It, it absorbs so much energy. Could you use it for solar? And that's how serendipity is so the whole solar division emerged, right? And so it's kind of those things where 
you allow people to connect the dots differently to your point and you, you allow them to have more serendipity once they share these small vulnerabilities that are not about kind of like your identity and you're a loser now, you're a failure now, but you allow people to, to, to understand, oh, actually it's okay to be uh, fallible. And I think that's, that's the most important thing in parenting, right? To say, if you have a kid, like you want the kid to feel, I can be wrong sometimes and that's not a reflection on me as a loser or as a failure, but that's just, you know, I've, I've been learning from it and like next, like next thing. And, and, you know, to me, that comes back to a bigger question. I've always been a big fan. I had two near-death experiences in my life and I've always been a big fan of thinking about when I'm on my deathbed, what do I regret? Because I, I, I think, you know, we always assume we have so much time in life. We always assume, yeah, I can work in a bank for five years, make enough money and then do the thing I'm really excited about. Yeah, but you know what? You might run in front of a car tomorrow. You might get cancer and you might just not have that time. And so I'm a big fan of really thinking about what would I regret if I would be on my deathbed tomorrow and then really thinking about, okay, how can I now do the things I really want to do, but taking a calculated risk. It's not about kind of like just going all out and like giving everything up. It's about saying, okay, how can I now do small experiments? That comes back to your earlier point about curiosity. How can I if I work in a bank and it really isn't fun for me, how do I spend 10% of my time that I'm at home on exploring new things, building new things, and, and in a safe context, explore new things that, that could work for me? And I'm a big fan of really doing this because then I think you minimize your regrets in life versus like this kind of idea of, oh, just playing it safe. And then at the end of life saying, shoot, like I probably should have done more. Totally. And I love that you're including that into the conversation because I think it's, crucial to speak more about death, to make it more common. You know, it's the only thing that we have for sure that's going to happen to us in our life and to the people that we know, right? And I don't know that it might sound scary, but on the good sense, death is actually one of the things that help us, first of all, have better lives because all the time if we are in a, in a near-death experience, kind of like we prioritize <laughs> kind of like what's important for you in life right second of all it also adding this conversation about death it helps us you know achieve and kind of like you know feel and savor the moments more and a third one and i love this point is about death actually has been one of the best things that could happen to human race because eventually that's something that allows us to be in different states something that, that gives us expansion, right? Something that helps us, you know, transform and maybe be reborn, not only physically, but how many, you know, deaths and reborns have you had in your life? You know, things that don't work with you anymore and maybe, you know, new things that you're rebirthing. Even ourselves, right? They change every seven years. So we're constantly in this constant process of death and being reborn, death and being reborn, right? And maybe probably, we don't know what, as a fact, what's going to happen when we die. But, you know, eventually we have these birth and rebirth, you know, that's happening in the planet, that's happening with the plants, that's happening with the animals, that's happening, you know, with humans. And, you know, if we use the biomimicry, right, you know, the design that, you know, humans use based on nature, maybe mathematically it's it's giving you giving us an information that maybe we don't know that we only have one life <laughs> maybe right and then we step into different you know terrains but i think death is so important to add into the conversation because sometimes we tend not to talk about it we tend to run from it we tend to you know and it's something that eventually it's 
it's it's it's near to us right we had in the luan live session inside you know uh, the luan we have this uh, program every wednesday where we invite different you know speakers and we invited a palliative care doctor and she told us that uh, well she part of her work is to help transit the patient that's about to die right kind of like you know work with fear work with different you know emotions around it and also you know to be kind of um how how can i say this um you know to help transition also the families right and something that she shared is that most of her patients all the time in life when they were about to die most of them they had regrets about relationships none of them none of them had regrets about taking a job working more working less not almost nothing was about work related most of the things were like i should have spoken to this person i should have reached out to my son i should have spent more time with my kids or my partner it had to do with relationships and constantly i think we need to do these exercises right constantly in our lives if we were about to die today what are we needing to change in our life to achieve a death that's you know that we're at peace with yeah absolutely and and no i'm completely with you there it's actually it reminds me of the um uh one of my favorite articles i think it was in the guardian or somewhere um where essentially they write about deathbed regrets where nuns when they're at the deathbed of people they ask them what do you regret the most and it's, it's exactly those things right um nobody ever said i regret that i didn't have a fifth car in the garage right like like nobody ever said like any material stuff like it's usually exactly like more meaningful relationships being more authentic to oneself i think that's a big one right in terms of how do you um that comes to the playing it safe point earlier that i think you know what does it mean to live an authentic life because we all have societal pressures we all have all these peer pressures and everything else but at the end of the day we have to justify to ourselves do do i want to be the person i am at the moment and i think it's not always easy because obviously we're different people to different people but i think it's it's really interesting to identify the non-negotiables right to really understand in my life like what are the kind of things and i had to learn that the hard way i've had situations in my life where you know i felt there were trade-offs of, of different values and i i kind of like naively would trade one over the other And then afterwards, I would feel really weird about it. And then I realized, okay, next time when I have a similar trade-off, I realize now this value is more important than this one. And, and so I feel that's the beautiful thing of like the life journey, right? That you you realize what are the kind of things that are non-negotiable. And I'm I'm just such a big fan of of really thinking more proactively, like really kind of it's something I only started later on in I mean later on in life, but like I only started in my kind of late twenties, early thirties, where. I would write down a little bit more what are the kind of things that are absolutely non-negotiable to me and if I join a new company or a new organization or an advisory board or whatever it is those are the kind of things I look out for and if I see a small indication of this I will not join like I will just not join because I know that they will put me into situations where I will face trade-offs of values that I don't want to have trade-offs right if you go into a tobacco company you know that they will put you into situations where if you have to then increase sales of tobacco to 18 year old kids like that's probably something you'll feel uncomfortable with but you know that in advance once you kind of start in there because sometimes it's a bit tougher to see it right and i feel like that's kind of the interesting thing to to navigate like how do you see it coming in a way more and more and, and trust your intuition versus just kind of what someone tells you and and of course. you know buying into that totally agree with you and i think sometimes it gets a little bit more complicated because we can have 
our towards values, right? Set in a, in a specific, you know, uh, priority list. And then we can have a move away values that contradict themselves. So I think kind of like having coherence between what we do, what we think, and what we feel is part of the success of human beings, you know, even more than having a very successful company with a lot of sales, because I think that's quite complicated. And, you know, sometimes maybe you might feel like, okay, well, I want um, adventure, right? And maybe your move away value, it could be kind of like, you know, uncertainty, So how can you have adventure when you remove away value is uncertainty, right? So maybe you can have, you know, those two things that are contradicting themselves. And once I did this exercise of the towards value and the move away values, and I did a 10, you know, 10 values per list. It was incredible how many of them contradicted themselves over and over, over and over. So there's also, you know, it can be confusing about how do you prioritize, right? Which value would you address first? Which one is negotiable and non-negotiable? And I think that's where the magic lands, right? And Chris, I want to ask you, so, so we've spoken about the rational part of serendipity, right? And I want to ask you, what's the scientific part behind serendipity? Yeah, well, it's interesting because a lot of the, when you think about how can you actually study it, right? How can you actually understand what is serendipity? Um, we use a lot of qualitative methods in the sense of we, for example, would study an incubator and then we would study entrepreneurs who uh, bump into someone unexpectedly. And then over time, we see how does it unfold? Like, do they make something happen out of it? Do they not? And then we compare that. And so it's a lot about over time seeing how does someone react to the unexpected? What do they do with it? Um, the same with experiments, right? Like in this kind of experiment I mentioned earlier, you can put people into situations and you can see how they respond differently to different um, things. One of my favorite experiments is where they ask people to read a newspaper and to count something in the newspaper. And um, then they literally on page two already write, well, you can stop counting. It's exactly X, Y, Z words. Um, but most people don't see it because they're so focused on kind of like counting versus like the big picture, right? And so it's those kind of experiments then where, where you can see who reacts to what kind of stimulus and, 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 and so on. And then, and then I think what's fascinating one is counterfactuals, right? So the idea of what could have happened, like if you, if you there's the, the example of like rabbits, for example, uh, uh, where a couple of decades ago, two researchers at the same time injected rabbits, uh, rabbits with pepine, an enzyme, and, and their ears flopped, right? So they kind of just like flopped. And that was surprising to both of them. But only one of them actually followed up with it, realized, oh, wow, that's about blood flow. That could be interesting for arthritis and everything else. And that became like amazing in terms of arthritis price-winning research. And then the other one didn't do anything with it. And so you can see what could have happened had someone followed up versus um, the person who actually followed up. And so I think there's a lot around this, but the, the excitement I think comes from and why I'm so excited about, about studying this is that when you look at serendipity stories, they're very different, right? The, the serendipity story of a social entrepreneur in Kenya is very different from the serendipity story of the CEO of MasterCard and of yourself and of, of, of others. But then when you distill the, the kind of moments, it always comes back to the same process. It's always the process of there's some kind of unexpected event and then someone kind of connected the dots. And then a lot of times they had the tenacity, the grit to actually go through with it. And so that's the beauty of it, that then you can trace the process 
And then you can make it actionable. Then you can say, great, let me do something about all of this. And, and that to me, I mean, you know, we've known each other for a long time. And, and as you know, like I'm, I'm all about trying to understand, like, how does this now have a meaningful impact? How do you now take this? And to me, one of the biggest, biggest things that comes out of this is to say, if you're a, a, a person, if you're a child that grows up in this world, that's so full of uncertainty, so full of the unexpected, how do you build a muscle for the unexpected that is actually scientifically rigorous where you can say, okay, if I'm a 16-year-old kid, there are a couple of things I can do where I know that they will actually help me later on. And it's not about learning something particular in maths or something particular in history. It's actually building a muscle that, 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 that makes sense. And so to me, this is the most rewarding part of it to really see how people decrease the anxiety with it, how people reconnect with their children about it. One of my, my most beautiful moments was when, when a, the mother of an autistic son who read the book, like she wrote back and she was like, Christian, like this, this, this like gave me a toolkit to reconnect with my autistic son now that I can't send him to school because due to COVID they were at home. And so it's really these kind of things where I wouldn't feel comfortable giving people advice if it wouldn't really be scientifically kind of evidence-based across different contexts. And I think that's what the fascinating thing is that this plays out in so many different contexts and, and it's just always the same pattern. Totally. And from all these stories that you've, you know, researched around the world about, you know, these serendipity stories, what common denominators, what common characteristics do these people, the links, the connecting of the dots, you know, what characteristics these people have? Are they optimistics? Are they, for example, people that are um, less easily bored, for example? Are they people that have lower anxiety? What characteristics have you seen these people share? Well, I mean, the beautiful thing is that I've seen it with like almost everyone who actually tries it. So, so what I mean with this is that, yes, people who are more optimistic, it's more likely that they will have it happen because they see more potentiality, they see more what could be possible in the situation and so on. But, you know, my amazing wife, whom you, whom you met, um, you know, she, she, for example, she's not the most optimistic of people, but actually she's the most amazing dot connector I know. Like you tell her about something and she will be like, oh my God, Marian, I want to introduce you to this person. I want to do this. I want to do this. So she's an amazing dot connector while not necessarily being the most optimistic. And so I see it in, like a lot in terms of Venn diagrams, right? That you can like, you can like, yes, it makes it a bit easier if you're an optimist, but also if you're not an optimist, you can make it happen if you do a couple of things. You can be an amazing dot connector um, and, and, and so on. But, but to me, it really comes back to that everyone, even the most of introvert people, for example, right? So extroverts, yes, it's easier because you, you connect with that businessman, right, in the coffee shop. So you, it's more likely that there's an opportunity that you get and so on. But, you know, for closet introverts like myself, like who we have spikes of extroversion and then we're hiding in the toilet because we, we need to refresh and, and recoup. Like for, for people like us, you know, a lot of times serendipity comes from silent sources, from calm sources. It comes from reading a book. It comes from watching a movie and then connecting the dots to something different. And so I'm a big fan of, of actually, no matter what situation you're in, there's always these kind of, and that's why I'm so excited about these exercises of saying, ask one different question per, per, per session or um, ask people what surprised them last week, whatever it is, but just something that gets people into the mindset of, wow, I can actually create serendipity no matter what kind of personality I am, no matter what kind of thing I am. And then depending on what personality you are, you can tweak it to your authentic self, right? So if you're an introvert, you don't have to force yourself to always be extrovert. But then, for example, one thing I used to do um, a lot when kind of like, you know, I felt not that comfortable, like being always out there, I would, for example, go to dinner parties or to conferences, and I would try to talk with the host first 
get them excited about my idea. And then that person would talk to so many other people. So I would leverage the extrovert. So you then don't have to talk with everyone. And so it's those kind of small things where if you're an introvert, for example, you can leverage extroverts to do some of the work for you and, and things like this. And so, but again, as an introvert, also you can force yourself into those situations of discomfort. So um, I think the beautiful thing of this is like, you know, it, it, it prefers some people over others, but everyone can somehow have their fair share of it. Totally. Amazing. And I love it how, you know, something as serendipity could be, um, could be backed up scientifically, right? Because most of the times we can think that, you know, this kind of serendipity could be new age or could be, you know, wishful thinking or positive thinking or however we want to call it. And I love it that you're, you know, behind the scenes doing all the scientific and I would love it if eventually it could be measured. Have you tried that? Have you, have you measured it? Yeah, no, it's, Absolutely. And, 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 you know, it's interesting because it's one of those things where, um, so yes, like, you know, there's different kind of ways of how we've, we've been trying to measure it. So for example, one thing um, we've been doing is a serendipity score. So it's, it's kind of like um, around 40 questions where it's questions like, um, you know, if you bump into someone, do you speak with them? Whatever it is, right? So things that in a way let you understand, oh, do I have a propensity towards serendipity versus not? And then you can work on those different areas. So yes, you can, you can use these kind of different methods to measure it. I'm a big fan, you know, I, like my, my kind of romantic notion and my, my, the, the notion of magic always is I don't feel we should put too many kind of like things on it in terms of I think everyone experiences it a little bit differently and I'm a big fan of that. But, but I think, you know, it's important to have research that actually also measures it. So for example, what we do some in, our, in some of our research is literally kind of things like, you know, um, we sometimes look for solutions and then it comes from an unexpected place or, you know, like very easy measures that you can very easily then kind of categorize serendipity as kind of something you can, you can measure. But um, again, I would never want to take the magic out of it. I think there's a lot of magic also in, in it. Of course. And there's one of these last questions that I would, that I can't help but not ask you, but what's your serendipity story? How's your connection with serendipity? Well, I mean, you know, it, it's been my life force. It's been my, my, my daily practice. I mean, everything that is meaningful in my life, almost everything comes out of serendipity, sandbox, leaders on purpose, um, the way, uh, and by the way, also one of the, um, you know, there's a, one story that's very meaningful to me is, is uh, uh, around uh, two years ago, uh, you know, there was a, a woman in New York who, uh, who, uh, you know, just went through a rough divorce, like it was COVID, like really depressing time. And, uh, and she got a, 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 a message from a friend who just had arrived in New York and who said, hey, like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm bringing a couple of people together socially distantly. Do you want to join? And she first like didn't respond. And then somehow she saw something on his Instagram that resonated with her. So she kind of said, hey, this resonated. He reminded her to, hey, why don't you come to the gathering? They, you know, went on a date uh, and now she's my wife and, 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 uh, and, and we have a baby girl and, and it's kind of the, 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 the love of my life. And, and so uh, to me, the way I found the love of my life and the, the, my baby girl uh, was extremely serendipitous uh, in the sense that she had an amazing serendipitous mindset of how then she, for example, um, you know, when we went on the first date after we went to that event, she would have something. Um, so in the morning before we met, um, she had written down like coincidentally so 
she had written down the qualities she was looking for in a relationship. So not the kind of person she was looking for, but just like, what am I looking for in a relationship? Mm-hmm. And, and because she had just learned the hard way, well, it doesn't work to just look at criteria of the person. And so, so um, in the evening when I met her, like she somehow randomly mentioned, oh, like, hey, you know, I just made that list. And I was like, hey, like, tell me about it. And she was like, no, I don't want. And so, you know, when I pushed, she was like, okay, I'll read it to you so that, you know, she could self-censor uh, the things she, she didn't want to say. And, you know, she read it. And in my mind, she was still a friend. Like, we were friends. Like, we knew each other since 10 years. Like, like Fabian, our mutual friend, like, he connected us over 10 years ago. And, and, um, and uh, that's also how we met, right, Fabian, I think. And, uh, and, and so he, um, you know, and, 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 and she went through the list. Co-founder in life, she's looking for um, someone to kind of, like, have an impact, but also be at home with. And, and like, all these kind of things. And in my, in my head, it was tick, 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 tick. And what it did with me was like I looked at her differently. I was like, "Wow, like that's not that could actually be relationship material." And 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 so kind of like it was this fascinating kind of um, like switch, I think, in perception. And and so she was just really kind of like subconsciously or or like like coincidentally, she kind of like in a way put some hooks out there that like then coincidentally kind of like worked. And and so I, I think it was fascinating to to see that kind of serendipity emerge in in that way as well. But again, I you know serendipity has. Yeah, I, 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 it's hard for me to even think about something that hasn't been serendipitous in my life in the sense of, you know, as a German, I love to plan things out, but usually things like come differently, right? And, and yeah, things yeah. are out of our control most of the times, right? Yeah. That's a wonderful story, Chris. Thank you so much for sharing. I loved it. So just to close, I would like to ask you a few questions. And ideally, it would be for you to answer in one or a few words. Just try to keep it short. Everything that comes, so the first thing that comes to mind, that works. Don't think them over, right? So what is art for you? Beauty. Your favorite author? Victor Franco. An advice that changed your life? I think Viktor Frankl's idea that you cannot always control the situation you're in, but you can always like control your response to it. Mm-hmm, totally. The best quality in humans. Empathy. A book that you recommend. Viktor Frankl's uh, message for me. What feeds your soul? Love. The most pressing issue for humanity. More empathy in the world. If humans can agree on this, you will be very happy. More empathy in the world. What would you like to scream to the whole world? (laughs) More empathy in the world. And the last one, what is it that you have lived that no one could miss experiencing it? I think it's love. I think it's, it's, I think, I think there's a lot of cynicism in the world. I think there's a lot of, you know, ideas that, Hey, real love doesn't exist, doesn't exist. And, and I feel real love is, it takes a lot of work, right. But it's also something that the more you work for it, the more also you feel it. And so I, I hope that everyone experiences it at some point in their life. Um, you know, uh, being it's romantic love friendship, um, but love in the, in the deepest sense of the world in terms of connection. Totally. At the end, what we take is pure love, right? We don't take the money. We don't take many other things. We take the love. <laughs> yeah. 
Amazing, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your magic and your essence and your experience with the Luan community. I appreciate it very much. And I love seeing you again and connecting with you again. Absolutely. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Want to keep the conversation going? Luan, the world's first emotional museum, designed a global online experience to inspire and explore. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Telegram, and visit our site at luanmuseum.com to engage creatively. <laughs>